This is episode 123 of Alohomora for February 7th, 2015. Hey, all you listeners, welcome to another episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Kristen Keys. And I'm Kat Miller, and our special, I don't know, would you call her a fan guest today is MuggleNet's very own Claire Ferner. Hello, Claire. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good. It's been a very, very Harry Potter-focused evening for me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell um, our listeners a little bit about what you do for the site and, you know, you your Harry Potter story. Sure, yeah. So I started reading when I was about nine, I guess, and I discovered MuggleNet when I was about 12, and I joined the MuggleNet staff about two and a half years ago, um, and I'm currently sort of marketing the UK-based, sort of covering UK events, um, and I'm also on the team for uh, MuggleNet Live Expo Patronum. I'm also a Hufflepuff, which is highly, highly important. <laughs> All right. Well, Claire is joining us for a really fun and funny chapter this week. And we want to remind you guys to read chapter five of Half-Blood Prince, An Excess of Phlegm, because we will be discussing that shortly. But before we do that, as always, we are going to discuss some comments from last week's chapter, which was chapter four of Half-Blood Prince. Uh, which was Horace Slughorn, I believe. We meet the uh, professor. So our first comment here comes from Half-Blood Princess, assuming it's a she, says, Does anyone else think the Slughorn and Lockhart have a couple of things in common? According to Pottermore, the way Dumbledore got Lockhart to join was very similar to how he got Slughorn to join. Um, join staff, I assume they're speaking of. Both are vain and take an interest in Harry beyond what most people do. Lockhart's defining feature is arrogance because he's so famous, and Slughorn's defining feature is trying to collect talented and famous people so he can have good connections. These aren't the same, of course, but they both enjoy being in a lofty position. And Lockhart was a DADA teacher in Book 2, while Slughorn became the teacher in Book 6. I know he's not teaching DADA, but he's still a new teacher. So, ring theory. Yeah, I mean, I'm always very skeptical of the ring theory. Um... I feel like sometimes it's a little forced, but there are definitely some connections here, though I think Slughorn is much more skilled and subtle in the way he gets what he wants, shall we say, in collecting people, while, while Lockhart is is extremely superficial, and um, Slughorn is able to um, play behind, behind the lines um, much better. I completely agree with that, what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Cho-ching! <laughs> I feel like Lockhart's the type of person that Slughorn would try and collect. I know we don't know the age differences, but I wonder if if he'd been a, if he'd been teaching Lockhart, he would have tried to collect him. You know, that makes me wonder what Lockhart was like at school. Yeah, I don't feel like he was very skilled at anything. Just had a charming smile, <laughs> wooed all the ladies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, our next comment here comes from Enough Effing Owls. It says, on the subject of Inferi. I found the concept of an army of Inferi really interesting and potentially problematic. Did Voldemort reanimate everyone he killed? Does he only reanimate bodies of people that go missing, or does he go around pulling bodies from graves? If the latter is the case, are there any protective measures families of the deceased can put in place to prevent this from happening? I find it unlikely that Voldemort would kill someone, let their body be discovered, then go back for them to reanimate them. But are there enough missing people to make an army? I got the impression there were an absurd large number of Inferi in the cave. So that comes from a whole discussion last week about the Inferi. What do you guys think? Creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like Voldemort would, would focus primarily on the people he killed, right? Because there would be a certain, like, um, like he's obviously very proud of what he can accomplish. So he would lend preference to them. I do agree that... Um, it would be unlikely for Voldemort to kill someone, let the body be discovered, and then go back for them to reanimate them. But I don't know. It's just like, he also like leaves the scene, it seems like, when... Oh, and also he's not killing that many... I'm sorry, I'm talking in circles. But he he's not the person that kills them a lot of the time. It's the Death Eaters, right? He only kills um, in extreme circumstances when it's someone really important, like Amelia Bones was really mm-hmm. important, so he killed her himself. Um, the Potters. But he doesn't kill necessarily everyone. That's true. Yeah, so I was feeling. I was intrigued by the idea of the protective measure on a grave, though. 
Do you think that's a thing? Hmm. Possibly. <laughs> I feel like it could be a thing, just a general thing, but not necessarily against turning them into inferi. I hope not. Yeah. No, I hope that that's not like a common worry in the wizarding world even now. Oh no, yeah, I better boy. put a charm on it so my uncle doesn't become an inferi. Exactly. <laughs> Grave digging at a whole new level. Oh God, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's terrifying. <laughs> All right. Our last comment here from Snatch the Snitch is actually a couple comments or one comment and a few questions. So um, it says, I find Horace Slughorn to be a fascinating character and a great addition, especially plot wise, to the Harry Potter universe. I'm eager to hear what others think about his character. Some questions. Now, there were about 10 questions. I chose two that I really liked. Figured we could discuss. Mm-hmm. First one is, how much does Slughorn know or suspect about Voldemort's horcruxes? When he saw Gaunt's ring on Dumbledore's finger, did he just recognize it from when Riddle wore it? Well, I definitely think he's suspicious. I mean, we know from mm-hmm. later in the book that Slughorn's the one that gives uh, Riddle the, the lead to follow with Horcruxes. So I wouldn't be surprised if he has a pretty, uh, a pretty substantial suspicion about it. I figured he recognized it. But I, I was thinking about this last week when I was listening that I couldn't quite remember or if we knew the timeline of when Dumbledore first asked Slughorn for the memory. Because if he's already asked for it at this point, then he's definitely that memory is definitely going to be like the forefront of his mind. And he probably would have revisited it maybe through a pensive, seen the ring, and then it would be more there. But if it's something that Dumbledore didn't actually do until he got to Hogwarts then maybe he would, that wouldn't be the first thought. So maybe it was just a glance at the ring being like, oh, I kind of recognize that. Yeah, I think I think he, uh, hmm, because they start lessons pretty early on, right, Harry and Dumbledore? I actually can't remember. There is a slight delay, I think, in the lessons, because I remember Harry being a bit like, oh, I thought he was going to teach me something. And right. It doesn't actually happen. Yeah, that short. sounds yeah. It's a couple of weeks, I think. Forgive us, listeners. Remember, we read this one chapter at a time. (laughs) (laughs) So then Dumbledore would have had time in between there to talk to Slughorn about that memory then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, The second question is one that I've kind of always pondered. It says, why does Slughorn not join the Order or the Death Eaters? I mean, isn't he all about himself? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we definitely get the idea that he's... He's definitely not sh- ter- completely turned them down, right? From like the wavering he does here, um, he's like, "Well, I didn't affirmatively join them, so they probably think that I'm not with them right now." So he's mm-hmm. definitely never been like, "No, absolutely not. I, I am fully against your mission." But I don't know. He wants to be on the winning side, like so he's not gonna. Mm. Very. Yeah, Peter. that's definitely true. <laughs> Very Peter Pettigrew of him. Yeah. <laughs> Which do we see him joining more? You think? Well, it seems like we don't get the opportunity to see their side, but he's very hesitant. I mean, he's, I would say even farther, he's very anti-order. And in this, I guess it's the last chapter, uh, he's worried what the Death Eaters will think about him joining the Order, um, obviously because that means they would come after him. But we, we see, get more instances of him saying bad things about the Order than the Death Eaters, even though you may imply otherwise. He'd be a crappy Death Eater. <laughs> I think it's the thing of he, he likes, he doesn't want to like rule or lead, but I don't think he'd like to be let. He likes to have his little pocket of people that he influences and, and to be an influencer and participate, but I just don't think he would want to follow someone the way that Death Eaters have to follow Voldemort. Mm, unblinding mm-hmm. faith. Mm. Yeah, True. That makes sense. Well, snatch the snitch. I hope that those answers were satisfactory. And uh, <laughs> thus ends our recap of last week's chapter. All right. Now we're going to go into your responses for last week's podcast question of the week. Um, here's a little reminder of what that question was. In this, his namesake chapter, we finally meet Professor Horace Slughorn. When it comes to citing examples of a decent Slytherin from the Harry Potter series, Slughorn is often the first to come to readers' minds. However, Harry's first impression of Slughorn is not exactly flattering. What is it about Slughorn that sets him apart from Slytherins we've met thus far? What qualities, both good and bad, does he share with other Slytherins we meet and will meet? All right, this first comment comes from Nettle Scarlet, and I really love the first part that he says. Uh, Completely off topic, when I read this chapter the first time, 
however many moons ago and met Professor Slughorn, I imagine the Quaker Oats guy, an enormously, <laughs> <laughs> an enormously fat, bald old man, his enormous silver walrus-like mustache. Come on. Who didn't think of the Quaker Oats guy? And I completely did, so I love this. <laughs> so funny. Slughorn is one of my favorite in-between characters. I think he plays an important role in the story, but only in the sense that he has something that Harry needs to continue on his journey, solely for the purposes in Hufflepuff Prince. I think that Slughorn's way of categorizing people, whether in the slug club or classroom, will help Harry understand the politics of people, which will lead Harry to understand how to be persuasive enough to get what he wants by using public opinion, or in his case, Slug Slughorn's opinion. Dumbledore explains Horace quite well to Harry once they leave. Horace's great talent, which is rather cunning, is finding talent and giving it the boost it needs to thrive. After all, Tom Riddle was only truly curious to know if it was possible to split the soul into seven. Does anyone else notice that Dumbledore also mentions to Harry Professor Slughorn's favorite candy? Hmm. Yep. Dumbledore has a little foresight there, for sure. I know. <laughs> As he often does. Smart man. Yeah, I mean, with the cunning thing, I'm trying to see if I can reconcile like the thought of collecting people and also that being cunning. Because I guess you have to be coming to pick out which ones are going to really succeed. Yeah, I, I would I would call it more plotting probably than cunning, which I think they're similar in ways. Mm -hmm. I, I've always found like the black and white division of the houses kind of unsettling because I, I believe that I, there are enough examples of every house that shows complete scales of the characters. And I think he's just a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think, I think there's an element of cunning, not so much in his collection, but I, I can almost imagine that he's like, well, I haven't got someone who might be good in this industry, but so I'll like craft it from that. And that's kind of him trying to like spread his, his spider web and net out, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess there is an element of cunningness in that. Yeah. All right. Our next comment comes from chocolate frog, Ravenclaw. Great name. The difference between Slughorn and other Slytherins lies in Harry's interpretations of them, mostly because this is how we as readers see them. Slughorn is not immediately intimidating in the way that Snape is or flat-out mean as Draco is. Slughorn is, at this point, completely unimpressive to Harry. I believe that this is actually how most of the Slytherins are to Harry. He doesn't really know very much about them, nor does he honestly care too much about them. Harry cares about what happens to Draco, Crab, Goyle, and Snape, but he doesn't really notice any other Slytherins. The one thing that makes Slughorn different is that Harry is forced to come into contact with them. If Harry were to meet all the other Slytherins and spend as much time with them as he does with Slughorn, I think he would find that the majority, most definitely not all, are closer to Slughorn than Snape on the Slytherin scale. That said, I don't think Slughorn is the best example of the Slytherin house. Each house holds a wide variety of students, and I don't think one person can accurately represent all of them. But Slughorn does help in providing an example of the type of Slytherin that exists, but that we as readers and Harry rarely hear about. I like this. <laughs> I really liked it, too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an, it's an important point to remember, because sometimes we forget that we're seeing all these people and the events mm -hmm. through the filter of Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, so th this is a this is a good point, although I'm not sure that Harry doesn't care about any other Slytherins. I think we just don't meet any other significant ones. Well, I mean, besides Tom Riddle, of course. I think it's a lack of care. He just doesn't like you. Kind of, if you have your friendship group, and unless there's people like Draco who are just constantly pestering you all the time, um, he's just he's not focused on them. And he'd probably just, just sort of tar them with the same brush. So but do bother. you really think he cares about Crab and Goyle? I think. But I've always I think <laughs> when you like. Nope. When someone constantly <laughs> bothers you a lot, like if someone like inherently annoys you, and you know, like sometimes people, like certain people will just say stuff, it's like, oh, it really annoys me, but they, that person constantly grates at you. I feel like there's an element of where you care too much about them because yeah, of the fact mm -hmm. that like they annoy you. Whereas if you didn't care, they just wouldn't be on your radar and you just wouldn't notice them. Yeah, you wouldn't be thinking about them all the time. Yeah. And I think it's Crabbe Girl's connection mm -hmm. to Draco that makes Harry so, like, irritated by them and, and care about them to an extent. Sure. No, okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I definitely buy it because this totally just made me think of um, being in law school right now because I realized this is my first experience of being in a house-like setting. So, like, to make, a, like, a long description short, our law school class is split up into five sections, and um, we pretty much only have classes with people in our sections of about 100 people. 
Um, and everyone else, even though they're in the same year as me, I like never see except random passing. Um, and they're just like completely foreign bodies to me, except for just a few people who I do have in an occasional class who represent those sections and give me like very stark opinions about those sections. Um, and this is certainly like the, the way a law school works at our school. Um, so it's almost like houses where I get ideas of a section because of the way certain people stand out. Even though most of the people I wouldn't even recognize or really care about. And it's exactly what this person is talking about. So I totally buy it. Have you sorted them all yet? <laughs> um, well, there's, <laughs> let's see. There's five sections. Uh, my section is definitely the Gryffindor section, um, which I am very proud, proud of. Um, and I actually, I do know because I know what the Ravenclaw section is. I know what the Hufflepuff section is. Um, yeah, I do know what the Slytherin section is. I don't know about that. There's, and then there's one section I just have no idea about. So I guess muggles. they're like, yeah, maybe yeah. muggles. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually pretty funny it's to cool. them up. All right. And our last comment comes from Spinner's Inn. And they say, Slughorn is not the best example of what a Slytherin can be, but he is the easiest to pick out because he plays such a prominent role in the book. We don't see many other Slytherins in such visible places, but I think Slughorn typifies what a Slytherin should be. He's cunning. He's able to discern which of his students were going to make it in life. He's self-serving. He puts himself in the good graces of those students so he can call on them later. He's ambitious. He wants to be friends with all the important people. While he doesn't want to be in the limelight, he definitely aspires to be on a pedestal behind the scenes. What makes Horace Slughorn different from most of the other Slytherins we meet is empathy. He isn't vicious. He isn't too callous. He's a lot like Lucius Malfoy in that he will brown-nose all the important people so he can curry favor when he needs it. But he does it without Malfoy's malice. Huh. That's an interesting comparison between Slughorn and Lucius. That's something I'm not sure I would have ever thought about. Mm-hmm. I could get the brown-nosing yeah. definitely with all these important people in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because like, he definitely does try and sort of pull people the same way that Lucius, but Lucius does it so that he is, back to like we were saying before, like he, Lucius wants to actively influence and actively lead, like mm-hmm. slightly behind the scenes because he doesn't want too much attention because obviously the Voldemort connection. Whereas Slughorn just doesn't want that attention. He likes being known that people, like, that people will say, oh, Slughorn helped me get this or whatever. But I think that they are, they're similar, but I think there are significant differences very significant differences in that I think Lucius Malfoy is unbelievably more self-centered and mm-hmm. um, will do a lot worse to get what he wants than Horace Slughorn would ever do. Mm-hmm. But he's relatively self-serving. Yeah, I totally agree because I think Lucius is, um, isn't it's his focus isn't even just about Voldemort, right? He want, He's very much involved for himself. That's like why mm-hmm. in a post-Voldemort world, or at least when they think Voldemort's gone, he's like on the board of governors. Certainly nothing that Slughorn would ever do because that would put him too much in the public light. And it's not just on the governors. He pretty much acts as the assumed leader of that board. So, <laughs> um, yeah, he's definitely more prolific than Slughorn would be. Mm-hmm. But definitely some ties for sure. Thanks, everybody, for commenting on this week's podcast question of the week. If you have more to say, don't forget to check out alohamore.mugglenet.com and leave a comment. All right, now we are going to move into this week's chapter discussion. What is all of this? Chapter 5. Ow! An excess of flow. That's an excess of phlegm. Flow? No, no, it is an excessive flow. But of course, one can never have too much flow to let go. You should get that I checked your money. Alright, so, well, first off, as a, a note, I was thinking about this chapter the first time I read it. Um, gosh, I guess I would have been, I'm trying to think of how old I would have been. Um, I guess probably around 16 or so. Um, so around Harry's age, I guess. But the point is, for some reason, this is really odd to be like a 16 year old and not know this, but I didn't know what the word phlegm meant. Um, like I had never seen that word before. I don't know why. Um, we don't really use that word in the South. I don't think very much. Anyway, um, so I was very confused about the context of this chapter the whole way through. Um, it just kept like reading it, not, uh, because it was like a midnight read. So, um, I wasn't going to stop to figure out this word. That was probably not very important, but, um, one of those things that is much more amusing later on in life. But quick summary of the chapter. 
Dumbledore leaves Harry at the burrow, where Harry catches a brief glimpse of a gloomy Tonks. Arthur has been promoted at the Ministry, and then Harry gets a chance to reunite with Ron and Hermione, as well as an old face, and hears news of an upcoming wedding. Harry finally shares the prophecy with Hermione and Ron, and then at the very end of the chapter, we get some grades. Alright, so the first um, major area of the chapter is arriving at the burrow. Dumbledore has just left Harry, and <clears throat> as Harry is arriving, he sees Tonks inside the burrow, along with Mrs. Weasley. Um, and as we've, we haven't seen Tonks since the fight at the end of Order of the Phoenix, and she looks very different than her usual self, where she's usually very bright and um, lively, bubblegum pink hair, but here she has mousy brown hair. Um, Harry notes her appearance, appearance is less colorful. She leaves very quickly, even before Dumbledore even leaves. Um, she declines a dinner invite from Molly, who mentions that Lupin and Moody will be there for dinner. Um, and Molly, Harry notices that Molly looks troubled. So we know that something is up with Tonks. Um, we don't really get any reference, but it's not too surprising that she's pretty down at serious. That will come up a little later in the chapter. But other than that, um, Tonks and Dumbledore leave, leaving only Harry and Molly. They get a little late night or slash early morning food chat. And I just really, really love that Molly's kitchen is always open, always there for some onion soup and a nice little chat. It's just what what a wonderful luxury that would be to have her always there. And it sounds delicious because I'm kind of hungry. Mm-hmm. Onion soup sounds really good right now. And every time I read that, I'm like, oh, God, I really want some. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Just to backtrack to that previous comment about Tonks, about her being down about Sirius, I, I thought, I mean, this is me misreading, but I thought um, – at this point, it's it's still the Lupin thing. I think it's as early as oh, this. Yeah, I, I miss said that. You're right. We we start to think that it's um it's be- mostly because of Sirius. But yeah, you're right. Molly's Thank like you for correcting me. Massively hinting of like Lupin will be there. <laughs> right. Well, I I always thought actually I was going to comment on the hint. I thought mm-hmm. that it wasn't quite clear enough. Yeah, sure. She's like, oh yeah, Remus and Madai are coming. But I feel like um this could have been a good time for Joe. To, to hint a little bit mm-hmm. at that, um, to kind of confuse us a little more. Um, but, you know. Yeah, see, I, I actually haven't actually physically read this in a long time. I, I've listened to the audiobook since almost, since, I, think, I think I read it once or twice and then listened to the audiobooks. And there is a very slight emphasis on Lupin over Moody. And maybe that's listening to it in hindsight. But I was listening to it back again, prepping for this, and there is definitely an emphasis on Lupin there. Well, it's got to be the way that it's said, because all she yeah. says is, Dear, yeah. why not come to dinner at the weekend? Remus and Mad-Eye are coming. Yeah. And there's definitely yeah. like, yeah, there's definitely something there. And maybe it's just because Remus is there first. Like it's the line, the word okay. said first, but there's something there. Interesting. Yeah. I've never listened to audiobook for this. That's huh, interesting to hear. Um, but shortly after their, or shortly into their little chat, um, Harry talks to, or Molly actually brings it up um, about meeting Slughorn because Dumbledore had just mentioned it. Um, We find out that Slughorn taught Molly and Arthur as well. Um, Quick check, actually. I just realized this. We don't know yet that he originally taught potions, right? No. Um, No. That hasn't been slipped to us yet. Okay, so it's definitely intentional that Joe is still keeping us in the dark about that. Um, So we find out that Arthur was not so much of a fan of Slughorn. Molly repeats what Dumbledore told Harry, that he likes to collect students. Arthur feels a bit scorned um, because he wasn't picked. Molly points out that he is, of course, um, rather successful now how wrong Slughorn was. Of course, this is just to amp up that Arthur has been promoted at the Ministry of Magic and put as head of a new office um, known as the Office for the Detection and Confiscation of Counterfeit Defensive Spells and Protective Objects. Quite the name there. Um, A creation of new Minister for Magic, Rufus Scrimgeour. This, to me, what it screamed out, it's an early indication that Scrimgeour is being pretty extensive in the way he's shaking up the Ministry. Uh, he's creating at least this new office and probably several others trying to fill the gaps where he thinks Fudge messed up. Does it seem like he's making a good choice with this office and others? Yeah, I just always wished that it had a good, um, what is it, anagram? When it 
spells out something <laughs> acronym. else. Acronym. Acronym. Yeah. That's it. Acronym. I always, I always wanted this to be like a really funny acronym, and I mean, yeah, it's there's not. nothing here. Odd could. <laughs> So, something. <laughs> yeah, something I noted from um, listening to last week's episode, people talking about Scrimger, like, I know there was a reference to Dumbledore and Scrimger not getting on in the newspaper and stuff, but I've always quite liked him as a character. He seemed like the type of person who's going to get up and get things done. And maybe he didn't really go about it particularly well with Harry, but I always felt like that was pressure from the PR team trying to make him do something he wasn't so, like, on board with. And from his point of view, he doesn't know Harry. Harry is just a kid who's, like, apparently doing some cool stuff um but yeah i think this is uh, i think it's a pretty good step like arthur's clearly doing more useful things than he might have been doing in his previous job in terms of they're at war and they need someone who's cleaning up this stuff yeah it actually made me think uh, forgive me claire for talking about american history briefly but um <laughs> like in a moment of national crisis um even though it wasn't war in this case but when um fdr as president was responding to uh the Great Depression and economic crises um, created a lot of regulation in the U.S., created a lot of agencies to deal with all of these problems to get the economy going. Um, it's when most of the, like, the agencies in the U.S. government were created, like the F. I don't want to go into detail and sound really nerdy <laughs> and boring. But anyway, it just made me think of like how Scrimgeour is responding to national a national crisis is by creating like more specific government roles. Um, because he thinks that's what is lacking. I think it's also quite fun to note that Arthur wasn't much a fan of Slughorn, and this is exactly how Ron reacts, and just the similarities between like father and son. I was going to say that too. I think it's really, it's really, it's really telling about Slughorn's character. You know that Arthur was like, eh, you know, eh, because Arthur pretty much, I'd say, gets along with everybody. I mean, really, Mm. except for Malfoy. Um, and he's well liked, so I think I think it's very telling. Um, we get a brief look at Molly's uh, cl- really wonderful clock, except right now it's not very wonderful because all the hands of the Weasley family points to mortal peril. And Molly tells Harry, "This is it's been this way since um since Voldemort has has risen up." And then Arthur shows up. Um, at the door, <laughs> and we get one of the most wonderful scenes in the entire Harry <laughs> Potter series, um, because earlier in the book, we learned that these brochures are um, advising families to have these special codes and systems to verify um, <laughs> who people actually are. And the first question is um, Molly asking Arthur his dearest ambition, which is to see how airplanes stay up, which is funny on its own, but little do we know what's coming. Uh, (laughs) Not knowing that Harry is sitting right inside the door, Arthur um, makes Molly respond to what he calls her when they are alone together. Um, And mortified, she whispers, but Harry still gets to hear Molly waddles. (laughs) Um, which it's kind of, it's cute in its own way, but also really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if you're that embarrassed by it, I mean, I guess that's a good reason to pick it, but also why would you, pick, I mean, if they do, if they do this every night, this must, this can't be the first time somebody's overheard them. You really imagine maybe the kids have overheard the nickname, but maybe, maybe not Harry Potter. <laughs> because it's Harry, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But what if like Dumbledore was still standing there, you know? He'd love it. That's true. <laughs> He would. He probably would. That's true. I'm more thinking if McGonagall was standing there, she'd be very unimpressed. I bet she's had some good nicknames in her day. (laughs) She was married. So I just wanted to briefly talk about um, the subject of Arthur's job, which um, we get a couple of examples. Basically, the point of the office is to deal with this um, rise of counterfeit and questionable objects that are popping up in response to the now public risk of Voldemort and the Death Eaters being back. So we get examples like um, potions, um, instructions for defensive jinxes that actually make your ears fall off, (laughs) and metamorph metals that help you transform by just putting a simple metal on. First off, this... (laughs) It makes it seem the wizarding world is very naive in times of peril. And this is something we're starting to see more and more in this series, like how average some of the wizarding community is. I mean, we are sort of spoiled because we're we're always exposed to the people who are close to the front lines all the time. But now we're getting to see like how gullible the average person may be. Um, because 
God, it'd be hard to imagine believing in these things, but I guess it's hard to not, uh, it's hard to know without like trying to put yourself in their shoes. Well, I think too that they're just so reliant on magic for kind of everything and they've had such an easy life because, I mean, mm-hmm. there hasn't been a dark wizard in however many years, so they probably aren't brushing up on their defensive spells and all that, so they'll take the quick and easy way, but it is, it's, it's, it's shocking. I would agree. Ugh, I always scary. think it's like a, as seen on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's <laughs> legit. Billy Mays here, bringing you the newest. <laughs> oh, R.E.P. Billy Mays. That's yes. <laughs> But, you know, people fall for that all the time, so why not wizards as well? Hey, you know, some of those things do work. <laughs> I don't have, I, I mean. Love love my pocket chair. Your pocket, wait, what's a pocket <laughs> chair? It's literally a chair, like a tripod chair that folds into your pocket. No way. <laughs> I really don't have one, but I've used it before. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> you want it in every color. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing this made me think of, because it seems this is the problem with everyone knowing about Voldemort being back. I mean, obviously, public knowledge is good, and it's good for them to know that the risk is there, but does it in some way justify Fudge not wanting everyone to know so much when they were arguably, granted, um, not so sure that Voldemort was back because it would lead to this public frenzy? No. (laughs) No, I I think um, if he hadn't told the Wizarding World but was doing stuff to try and find out, to confirm that Voldemort was, like, back and, like, functioning and and doing everything he was doing, I think then it would have justified it. But the fact that Fudge was purely doing that for his own benefit, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. lie and to just ignore the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I get that. But I also wonder if we're biased because we only see Fudge from a few perspectives. Um, I don't know. I'm willing to give him... A slight benefit of the doubt, but still, <laughs> still know that he made some pretty clear mistakes. Um, I think it's hard, like from a government. I think about like what our governments know and don't share with us about threats, but it's a little different here because it's like mm-hmm. such a single great um, threat. Yeah. I just think like, what if there? Uh, I don't know. There's not anything really c- comparable because it would have to be like. I don't know, Osama bin Laden still alive and running rampant through the U.S. or the U.K. or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and still people are more different. protected because they can't just apparate right in front of your door. Right. But anyway, the, the the last kind of note on these objects is Molly's worried. Um, she has, it seems like she's been worried actually for a while that Fred and George might be behind some of them. <laughs> Granted, that some when you read some of them, like the defensive jinx that make your ears fall off, that immediately triggered in my mind, oh, this is totally something Fred and George would do. <laughs> um, that they may be behind some, but Arthur reassures her once again that they're not. Um, and I don't think, I think that Fred and George are at least smart enough to not play with people in that degree, considering this subject, um, that it has to do with Voldemort. Yeah. But it is funny that she's mm-hmm. that worried. They're probably also interested in making money now. They don't need to make stuff for jokes. They're actually making a killing doing um, government contracts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we learned things are going pretty well for them. So then Harry gets his fill of food, is pretty tired, and heads to sleep. And he's woken up by Hermione and Ron bursting in the door, very excited to see him. Um, he first tells them about meeting Slughorn. And again, we get this... Um, as we alluded to earlier, this assumption that he's going to be the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. And he starts to describe Slughorn briefly and notices Hermione looking at him, um, trying to see if, like, it seems like she's wondering if he's okay, and Harry's worried that it's going to come up about Sirius's death. But then Ginny pops in, and then we find out that Fleur Delacour is actually here and seems to be annoying everyone according to at least Hermione and Ginny, um, because actually Ron is very quick to defend Fleur. Um, the funny thing about this is all along, they don't mention by name Fleur by name, and Harry just assumes they're talking about Mrs. Weasley. So when, especially when Ron awkwardly defends her in such a way, um, Harry's very um, not sure about what's going on, but then we figure out um, as Fleur walks in, when Harry yanks up the covers to his chin almost instinctively, which I never really got this because, like, 
not only are Harry or Ron and Hermione in the room, but like, so is Ginny. So mm-hmm. like, what is he, what is he worried about here? It's not like he's unclothed. He's got pajamas on. <laughs> is it just that her like charms, the mal- magical charms? It just makes him suddenly self-conscious. Yes, yeah. It could be, yeah. Fleur in this book has always made me feel really uncomfortable because it's such, unlike a lot of Rowling's characters, which feel really three-dimensional, this one is such a stereotype of what Brits represent, how Brits represent the French. Uh. Um, That it's just like, until she gets that amazing moment at the end of the book when she's telling everyone to bog off basically just because bill's been attacked um she just kind of fills this weird void is yeah it's funny um but yeah and it's also really different from the floor that we met in the last book well mm-hmm. two books ago like she was clearly a bit like up herself yeah yeah it's a pretty big jump for us having um not even seen floor not even seen floor until a couple of like pages or i guess a page or two later for um hermione and jenny to have such a strong opinion of her when we last mm-hmm. saw the, when we last saw her it was a very different situation did, did she graduate after goblet um well she says she took her exams in like the sixth year so she was either in the sixth or seventh year in goblet so she either graduated after that or the year after mm-hmm. yeah I was just wondering how far removed she was from school. Because, you know, people are one thing when they're in school. And then once they're kind of out of school for a while, they either change or mm-hmm. they kind of get to be worse than they were already. Actually, yeah, don't we know in Order of the Phoenix? Yeah, doesn't some, um, she's already at Gringotts by Order of the Phoenix. So, yeah, she must have graduated after Goblet of Fire. Okay. Fleur comes up to the room with the tray of Harry's breakfast and Molly follows her shortly um, is very unhappy that Fleur has replaced her role as being Harry's stand-in mother. And this is all obviously a metaphor of all, um, just like a symbolic moment where um, it's not just Harry that um, Fleur is replacing for Molly. It's that Fleur is taking Bill away from Molly as well. Um, so it's just like a picture of the greater problem that Molly has with Fleur that, you know, maybe any mother has with, like, especially their first son getting mm-hmm. hitched and leaving, even though Bill's been out of the house for a while. We all know how overprotective Molly is, but it is pretty funny. I always forget, is Bill the eldest? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then we learn all of a sudden that Bill and Flora are actually getting married. They're already engaged, and the plan is to get hitched pretty soon. Molly is not crazy about the idea um, that it has moved too fast. Similarly for us as readers, it came very fast. Um, <laughs> and that she thinks this is only happening because of the uncertainty of the times with Voldemort back. Um, everyone just wants to live in the moment, um, enjoy love all they can. Except Jenny points out that she and Arthur did the same the first time Voldemort was around. But of course, Molly has a response for that. But they had been around for, uh, been together for a while. And then we get the nickname that I mentioned earlier we, that Jenny um, calls... Fleur Flem, which got to give her credit for for the the crafty nickname there. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder where that came from, like how she arrived at Flem. Yeah, that's but that's that's the um, the French stereotype thing. Oh. That's the like the way that I mean. To be fair, some French accents might sound a little bit like stereotypes because most stereotypes are based in fact. But it's <laughs> the thing of like I'm not even going to attempt to do a French accent because I will get it completely wrong. Even though I spent the entire day in the office with French people today, um, but it is it's very much the back of the throat. The way I mean that's not a stereotype actually. Just French like the French tone. I don't know what you call it, but the way that the vowels always sit quite far back. So like if you're going to ramp it up and ham it up as a stereotype, it sounds kind of phlegmy. Mm. But this is yeah, it's. It doesn't, but yeah, <laughs> that's where she's getting it from. So it's all about it's the all vignette, the, the, the tone. Yeah, it's, it's just, um, yeah, I, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> it's get it all I mean, we insult the um, French on this show all the time, so. Yeah, but like, I had someone, I had someone in the office say like, hashtag today, like, and it's, it's all quite back, like, um, and it, uh, and yeah, I'm not gonna try, but like, it, it does, it sits at the back there, so it can like sound almost like you've got something in your throat. So I think that's where, yeah, that nickname comes from. Yeah, got it. It's just kind of rude, and it's, yeah. Yeah, I always wondered, I was like, that's a really random, horrible name to give somebody, but now it makes more sense. (laughs) Yep. 
Even though uh, Bill and Fleur are engaged to be married, Molly has not given up hope for a better match for for her son. She mentions that um, it's she's trying to play matchmaker, basically. Or I guess this is Jenny. Um, I can't remember now if it's Jenny telling it or... Yeah, I think it's Jenny telling it. it. Jenny, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That um, Molly's trying to play matchmaker with um, Bill and Tonks, <laughs> which just pause for a moment if that would have happened. Um, also, maybe this is um, a slight foreshadowing because... Both of the men that Tonks is, at least according to Molly, possibly with, um, will be werewolves at some point. Oh. <laughs> so. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think Tonks and Bill would be an awful match. Um, That'd be pretty cool. Tonks, yeah. yeah, she's pretty adventurous and cool. I mean, with the exception of this morning time that she's in here. But uh, she's pretty cool and adventurous and fun. I think she could rock it with Bill. They'd make good travel partners at the very least. Yeah, I think they're pretty <laughs> compatible. Yeah, totally. And then we get this moment where, if you kind of look at it a little closer, Ron is actually getting a little shallow. I should say actually pretty shallow about Tonks. Um, comparing, like, Tonks' looks um, to Fleur, especially the way Tonks is looking now, um, compared to her lively self with her pink hair. Um, and then there's this really great moment of Jenny and Hermione standing up for Tonks, um, for being nice and intelligent. Um, so it's a good showing of what... Um, is really like valuable in someone for someone else to be attracted to them. Of course, um, Tonks doesn't win out here, but um, it is an interesting contrast. That, that is what Ron is really interested in, given he ends up with Hermione, who's obviously beautiful. But I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a Ron here and say that that Tonks and Bill, their celebrity name, could be Bonks <laughs> <laughs> or Till, but I think Bonks is more fun. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you think Ron's, like, shallowness here might be something to do with still, like, Fleur's effect, Vila effect still being on him? I mean, to be fair, it's Bill like that in Goblet of Fire when they're mm-hmm. getting their dates with the Eagle Bull. But... That's possible. <laughs> I mean, I think he probably leans on that excuse a little too heavily. Um, <laughs> you know, but he is, what, like a... a, a a 16 year is he 16 yet 15 yeah. or 16 year old boy um this pretty girl i don't know i think has magical powers to make him yeah quote unquote <laughs> magical yeah. powers yeah <laughs> um we get a brief moment where harry who always seems to be like slightly in the middle in these types of situations um sl- starts to defend floor um jenny is unamused by this of course so that's a good little preview for for their romance that will start in this book. Um, but then we get to some a slightly more serious issue. Um, Jenny leaves the room to help her mother out. Um, and then we find out that Tonks isn't dealing with Sirius's death too well. And so this is what gives us the idea that her um, being upset um, is motivated by losing Sirius, losing her cousin. And as the topic comes up, Harry gets a renewed worry that they are going to want to discuss it with with him more. Um, but you know, maybe uh, they don't ever really talk about it, but maybe they, sh- they should have. I mean, Harry's clearly going through a lot, and he still really hasn't talked to anyone about it, except for briefly Dumbledore in the in the outhouse right before he comes into the burrow. That's hard to, to not talk about it for this long. I wonder if they're being slightly wary after every time they tried to talk about it the year before, he sort of semi-attacked them. Yeah. Um, they're probably trying to, like, they're guarding themselves mm-hmm. from that. Let him come to them. I don't know. Mm. Harry's an internalizer anyway. He's not really a a, a speak-his-mind type of person. He he works things out within himself in odd and strange ways. So I guess it doesn't surprise me that he hasn't really reached out to anybody. Plus, he hasn't had anybody to talk to. I mean, unless he was going to talk to the Dursleys, which, not surprising. <laughs> yeah, and um, they bring up that Tonks thinks it's her fault fault that Sirius died, having been there, um, which, of course, internally um, draws out Harry's own self-blame. He thinks it's ridiculous that Tonks would blame herself. So, you know, in those situations, everyone kind of blames themselves to a little bit, of uh, to a, some degree, which is unfortunate. Um, we get a slight update that... Um, Fred and George are doing what really well in their business, which um, is actually comes up earlier in the chapter, but we get more on it here. Um, and that no one is still talking to Percy, um, who's just a douche and deserves yes. that. So, <laughs> least favorite character, God. Um, Me too. <laughs> um, then we get 
to where Harry starts to spill some things to her to Ron and Hermione. He tells them about Dumbledore's private lessons, um, and they are very intrigued about this, um, wondering what the lessons may be about. That actually comes a little bit later because first they Harry starts to talk to them about the prophecy. He hesitates for a little bit, but he remembers uh, Dumbledore telling him that he can and probably should tell them about it because he really and good friends are really important in this fight. Mm-hmm. So Harry does finally tell them about the prophecy um, and they're very quiet. It's a very solemn and serious moment. But what's more important, I think, than him actually telling them in this moment is how they respond to it and how Harry responds to that response in turn. But before they can even get to that, there's this really big anticlimactic moment where Hermione, who's holding this telescope, is showing like how serious this moment is. She's been squeezing this telescope and then it pops and punches her in the <laughs> eye. This like gag item that Fred and George have left behind because they're in their... Um, their old room. <laughs> She's like, Joe, like you had such this like serious <laughs> moment and you get Hermione punched in the face by a telescope. <laughs> I love it. I love the whole moment though. Like Ron's response, like his panic when he thinks something's happened to her and then how he just like brushes it off and makes mm-hmm. it like, oh, makes it a joke. But they, they try so hard to create these scenes in the movies and they just never quite <laughs> like the, the burning piece of paper. I think I remember what film that is in where they're just sitting around giggling about paper. Um, That's this one. It's, it's that kind of, is it is the scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was. Yeah. So they just try. They just yeah. They just never quite get that chemistry between between Ron and Hermione in these kind of scenes. And I mean, they shortchanged Ron. And I just I really like after his slight poor moment with Fleur earlier. I love this moment. It's just really cute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. And Harry's response later on as well is wonderful. So they briefly speculate about um, what Dumbledore might teach Harry and his lessons. Um, this is how they respond to the prophecy, which is not how Harry would have expected them to, because obviously the prophecy is very ominous. He shares with them the most important detail that basically one one of Harry and Voldemort will have to kill the other. Um, And actually I kind of want to read it because this, I need to find it because it's one of my favorite passages in the whole, whole series. Um, Harry did not really listen. A warmth was spreading through him that had nothing to do with the sunlight. A tight obstruction in his chest seemed to be dissolving. He knew that Ron and Hermione were more shocked than they were letting on, but the mere fact that they were still there on either side of him, speaking bracing words of comfort, not shrinking from him as though he were contaminated or dangerous, was worth more than he could ever tell them. I think this paragraph just cements how unique and how important and how amazing this like trio friendship is. Um, and it's just one little paragraph, but it's one of my favorite in the whole series. So good. Makes me well up every time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it also shows um, a maturing on Harry's behalf. Like, uh, how, so his response to Cedric was, I mean, it's his first real death that he's had to cope with because he obviously didn't remember his parents. And this is his second one. It's just a whole level, like a level of maturing for him that, I don't know, that he's actually appreciating his friends as opposed to pushing them away. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the friendship love moment wraps mm-hmm. up, even though Ron and Hermione don't know that um, Harry is appreciating it to a lot, to a very high degree. Um, but then Harry mentions to them that he learned from Dumbledore that today is actually supposed to be the day they get their um, owl results. So this immediately shifts the dynamic completely <laughs> because Hermione has obviously been worried about this for a while. Ron probably would rather them never come. But uh, <laughs> Hermione naturally begins to have this almost anxiety attack. Um, and then Harry, while she's worried, when clearly she's going to be just fine, Harry asks the question, what happens if he fails out? Um, and I think it's Ron, or who is it that responds? I can't remember. Is it Hermione. Ron? Hermione. Oh, it's Hermione, right. Yeah. That's right. Which is even funnier that she <laughs> asked what would happen um, if they fell out, if they have to talk to their head of house. But um, Fleur, who has no connection to the moment, feels the need to jump in. This is actually the the thing that annoys me the most about her here, uh, because there's just like this assuming nature here where she mentions that they uh, take their exams a year later, finding it how beneath her that they would take exams <laughs> one year earlier here in Britain. But um, the owls interrupt her, thankfully, and um, <laughs> they 
Hermione grips Ron and Harry by the elbows, uh, the most dramatic in this moment. And Harry gets his grades. We get his grades before we learn the others. And just so I don't make any error here, back to my book. So Harry gets an outstanding in defense against the dark arts. He gets an exceeds expectations and care of magical creatures, charms, herbology, potions, and transfiguration. He gets an acceptable in astronomy. Um, and he gets a, a poor and divination and his worst grade, dreadful history of magic. Uh, no trolls, thankfully for him. Um, I think the guy that surprised me the most was probably potions. Um, I thought he would probably get only an acceptable there when I read it the first time. Everything else is pretty much what I expected. I was surprised he scraped a P in divination, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any coursework? Maybe that helped boost him a bit. Yeah. I mean, sure. I-, I guess his, his flair for the drama probably uh, upped him from a D to a B. <laughs> um, so yeah, we get Harry's grades. Who's, he's done pretty well, except those grades in Divination of History of Magic. He's probably not too hurt about them. Um, then Harry glances, glances at Ron's grade, grades and he scans them. And it's this very like well-written line because I think it leaves it so open. Um, it says, Harry glanced down Ron's grades. There were no outstandings there, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so you don't really know what the like context is of him looking for that. Like, is he slightly satisfied that Ron didn't do better than him? Is he just making an observation? I mean, everyone has, a, I mean, grades naturally. You have this like competitive um, mm-hmm. air about it. So I'm sure he's at least somewhat pleased that he did better than Ron in some respect. Which is obviously kind of ridiculous because there's never really been a situation for Harry to think he needs to be better than Ron. But um, Molly is very happy that Ron has um, gets seven owls much better than um, Fred and George did. <laughs> Fred and George um, put together. Put together, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, she thinks so highly of those boys. God, poor <laughs> Fred and George. And um, Hermione gets 10 outstandings and one exceeds expectations in Defense Against the Dark Arts, of course. Oh, wait. Does your book say 10? I think so. Mine says 9, which I was going to bring up because there's Joe being bad at math again. Oh, let me. maybe I misread. Where, uh, let's see. 10 outstandings and one exceeds expectations at Defense oh, Against the Dark Arts. That's Mine funny. Mine says 9. Mine says 9. And one. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. That's amazing. Yeah, because I was wondering why it said 10. I was like, well, that doesn't add it up. Well, yeah, because they were talking, Ron was like, oh, when you get your 11 owls, and Ronnie's like, no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. So that's funny. Um, I'm looking at the original, like, when I got at midnight, when it released. That's the copy I have. Weird. Hard, American, oh, yeah. like, hardcover. I'll have to see. Yeah, I've got one of the, the American paperback right now. Which, it would you would think that if there's an error, it would be in an earlier edition. I have I have a digital copy from when it very first came out. It's really weird. Hmm. So bizarre. Yeah, I want to check my hardcover now. I guess we'll assume to make the math work, she does indeed get 10 O's and one um, yeah. exceeds expectations. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Joe does a really good job of making this much more impactful to close out the chapter than just a couple of letters and grades. Um, because Harry... While he's happy that he did pretty well, um, he pretty much assumes that his ambitions of being an R are um, over because and to be an R, he has to have um, pretty much an outstanding in potions for Snape to take him into the higher level class and he only gets an exceeds expectation. And then as he realizes these hopes are over, he recalls that it's ironic that a Death Eater, Barty Crouch Jr., is the one who gave him the idea to be an R. And... Um, Further, that the skills of an R would be the thing that would best prepare him for defeating Voldemort. So it's interesting on a couple of levels, I think, because one, he's pretty much just given up on the hope. Um, and it kind of sucks that a grade you get on this like lower level exam can be that um, impactful, which is probably Joe making a comment on standardized tests, which I know both of our countries um, have to deal with and the impacts of those, but also that for Harry, it's not about, oh, this career that I want to spend my life doing, there's problems with it. It's this career that could help me kill Voldemort may not happen. Mm-hmm. So it's a little sad. I like that Ron is like, Mom, 
are there any more sausages? <laughs> because <laughs> that's, on. yeah, his priorities. He's like, yep, that's Ronald. He's like, I'm good. That's cool. Uh, you know what? I'm hungry. Yep. Time to eat. <laughs> Fill my pie hole. Yeah. <laughs> and this little section like pulled up a couple of queries for me. Um, one of them was a smaller one is that if Harry's got an O in uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts and Hermione, who's supposed to be like the brightest witch, and yet she's not necessarily as good as Defense Against the Dark Arts as Harry, but um, it's not like getting a mar- um, like an actual like numbered mark. It's a grade, which is usually a scale, you know, maybe like 90 to 100%. If even Hermione hasn't managed to get an O in Defense Against the Dark Arts, has anyone else in the year managed to get it? And if so, that really bodes well. Um, or not very well, I mean, uh, for the war against Voldemort, if only one person in the year can achieve the top marks in defence against dark arts. Mm. Um, but then another thing I thought was, um, in terms of Harry being worried about, does it end his aura ambitions? At this stage, he's obviously thinking that the war against Voldemort is going to last long enough for him to finish school, train up as an aura, and then defeat Voldemort. It's like, we obviously all knew it was going to be a seven book series and we knew it was going to end at, like at the end of his final year. But obviously is, I mean, it's is ignorance or naivety or just completely misunderstanding or like a lack of awareness of what's about to, he's about to face that is making him think along these lines. I don't know. I just, it was, I thought it was quite interesting. All of the above. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't, I think that he understands what needs to happen, but I think he's in denial about, the fact that he mm. is the one who has to do that <laughs> still, you know, still kind of in denial and, Oh, you know what? If I just, you know, Dumbledore's here, he'll take care of it. He'll just <laughs> let me know when he needs my help type of thing. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to go along my merry way, play Quidditch and be good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting just how much he changes over this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much. In terms of his awareness of what's about to happen. And that ends our chapter. All right, let's go into this week's podcast question of the week. Um, In this chapter, thanks to Dumbledore's encouragement, Harry confides in Ron and Hermione about what the prophecy actually stated. What would have happened to Harry's progress if he kept them in the dark? What qualities does Dumbledore see in both Ron and Hermione that he feels would aid Harry in this quest? If you would like to leave a response... To this question, just head over to our main site at alohomora.mugglenet.com and leave us a comment. I'm really curious as to what y'all will put down. I think this is a really good question. I'm excited to see what the uh, what the listeners say. I uh, I have a feeling we're going to get some impassioned audio boons on this one. <laughs> yes. Yes, wanna... please leave audio boos. <laughs> yes, we love those. We want to hear them. And as we wrap up, we want to thank you, Claire, once again, very much for joining us. We hope you had a good time. It was great. Thanks, guys. Hopefully I can come back again before you guys finish in however long it's going to be. Oh, God. (laughs) Another, I don't know, year and a half, right? (laughs) Yeah. And if you would like to be on the show, just like Claire, head over to our main website, alohamora.mugglenet.com. All you need is a set of Apple headphones or something similar, and you are all set. No fancy equipment needed. And while you're there, you can download one of our ringtones for free. And in the meantime, if you just want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at MN, Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Of course, our phone number is 206-GO-ALBUS. That's 206-462-5287. And don't forget the aforementioned audio boom. You can leave one for free. All you need is an internet connection and a microphone. And you can do that at alohamora.mugglenet.com. There's a little green button on the right-hand bar. Just click it, start talking, keep it under 60 seconds, and you just might hear it on the show. And don't forget to check out our store where we have house shirts, desk pig shirts, um, Mandrake Lumination Front, Minerva is my homegirl, and so many more things um, for your pleasure. So go on over there and peruse it and get some really cool stuff. Also make sure to check out our smartphone app, which is available seemingly all over the world, wherever you may be. Prices will vary. You can get things like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host blogs, and much more. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Kristen Keyes. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 123 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore door. Ha 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 ha!
Thanks, everybody, for commenting on this week's podcast question of the week. If you would hide <laughs> stuff. Uh, I'm hungry. All I have is eggs and bacon in my house, which is, mm. what, I have, which is what I had for breakfast. So I can't really have it again for dinner. Ron Swanson diet.